Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter one. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The Jewish people to this day at their Seder meals put out a place setting for Elijah. Maybe Elijah will come tonight. Elijah's got to come before Messiah. Maybe he'll come tonight. And the children run to the door and say, is it you, Elijah? He's come already. They missed it. They don't have to set a place for him anymore. Even Jesus Christ knew that when he said, truly, I say to you among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Who's that? Who's least in the kingdom of heaven that's greater than John the Baptist? Jesus is talking about himself. He's least. He's the most humble, the meekest, the lowliest. He'll be exalted. He'll exalt the Father by being nailed to a tree. But from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And men of violence have taken it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And let him who have ears, let him hear. So Jesus Christ himself says that John the Baptist is Elijah. Oh, wow. That changes everything. If he's Elijah, then Messiah can come. So this little kid tonight, this little baby from this old ancient couple is the Elijah who is to come before Messiah. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. Now John the Baptist will be killed by another Herod boy, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He will silence the greatest prophet of all time, John the Baptist, because of his lust. Because Salami did a lustful dance and he's dripping with lust. And he says, I'll give you over half my kingdom. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And she says, looks at her mom and says, I'll take the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the greatest prophet, <laughs> silenced. Well, these are his parents. There was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. So we have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Scripture says they were righteous in the eyes of God. They were observing all the commandments, all the ordinances of the Lord. They walked blamelessly with God. They were a good, good, holy, priestly couple. They loved the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They're old, old, old. They're done. They're de she's past the time of bearing children. This would have to be supernatural. Once, Zechariah was serving as a priest in his division, in his division's turn before God. Now, I want you to know that there are 24 priestly divisions in the Levitical priesthood of Aaron. In 1 Chronicles, they list all 24. He's number eight in Abijah. What would happen is once, when their number was called, maybe twice a year, they would travel up to Jerusalem and serve in the temple for one week of priestly service. So his time to serve is now Abijah it's their week so he goes up it says in the Mishnah that he would have gone up to Jerusalem and they would have served for a week and then go home so he goes and according to the practice of priestly service he was chosen by lot the priest would cast lots to see who was to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn the incense 
Now, if your lot was chosen to burn the incense, that's the holy of holies. It's the holiest place on the face of the earth. It's the holy. You could, you could almost, this would be a once in a lifetime opportunity to get into burn the incense. And Zachariah's lot is chosen that day. It's him. This old man, he's going to get the chance of a lifetime to go into the temple of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies. This, uh, this is incredible. It is the most honorable service in the daily ministry for the priesthood to burn incense on the golden altar of the holy place. And Zachariah's lot has been drawn. So he goes to the temple. He enters into the sanctuary of the temple. And he's going to go into the holiest, holiest, holiest by behind the curtain, the four-inch thick curtain woven from top to bottom, just as the Lord had prescribed. And behind the curtain is the true presence of God. Behind the curtain is the Ark of the Covenant. And he would have to burn incense in front and make a screen in front of the Lord so that he wouldn't be seen because if you look on the face of God, you will die. Some priests had died in priestly service. One problem, the Ark of the Covenant. It's not there! Now, some of the Protestants don't know this because they took the book of Maccabees out. Because Martin Luther didn't like the doctrine of purgatory in Maccabees. Maccabees was removed. But this, they lose a huge chunk of history then, right before the time of Christ. Because in 2 Maccabees 2, we're told that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant. He took it because the Babylonians were coming and he wanted to save it in spirit. So he took it and he put it in a mountain and the Lord sealed the mountain shut. And no one has ever, ever, ever found the Ark of the Covenant. And people have been looking and looking and looking for hundreds and hundreds of years, even in Indiana Jones couldn't find it. <laughs> Jeremiah says this, the place will be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows them his mercy. It's never been found to this day. We've never found the Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? It contains the true presence of God. And what is in there? A little golden jar of manna. We're told in Hebrews 9, a little pot of manna, the original bread from heaven that Moses, they saved it. Aaron's rod that budded, showing his priestly authority. God chose Aaron and the tablets of the covenant. The Ten Commandments that were written with the finger of God were housed in this box, covered with a mercy seat. Now he gets to go in there and burn incense in front of this holiest, holiest, holiest place. And you can imagine what he was thinking, what was going through his mind. What do I say? How do I prepare? What do I do? I'm going to be in the holiest place on the face of the earth. Even though the ark's not there, the slab where the ark used to touch is there. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you die. All the people are outside praying. It's the hour of incense. When is that? There's two daily offerings for the Jews in Numbers 28, a 9 o'clock offering and a 3 p.m. twilight offering. This would have been the 3 p.m. This is the hour of divine mercy. This is the hour when Jesus died on the cross, 3 p.m., when he was 33 years old. After three years of service, at 3 p.m. It's a divine number. It's the number of the Trinity. So he's a priest of Israel. What is he supposed to be praying about when he goes into the holiest, holiest, holiest place on the face of the earth? What's he supposed to be asking for? He's supposed to ask for redemption for Israel. A Messiah, an anointed one. Redemption, redemption, redemption for the people of Israel. But what was he as a husband of Elizabeth supposed to be praying about? Because if you were Elizabeth and you had been barren your whole entire life and all the townspeople knew you weren't blessed by God, you didn't have any children, and yet you were righteous, if you were Elizabeth, would you say, honey, um, while you're in the holiest, holiest, holiest place on earth, would you do me one little teeny, teeny, teeny flavor, like after you're all done praying for the, the sins of Israel, would you just pray for a baby for us that I might know this joy? 
So he goes in there. He doesn't want to be struck dead. And when he's in there praying, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. Your prayer's heard. Your prayer's heard. Your prayer's heard. Which prayer? My priestly prayer or my husband prayer? (laughs) Your prayer's heard. Because guess what? They're the same thing. His priestly prayer is his husband's prayer. Because John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. It's the same prayer. If he prays for a baby that announces the Messiah, the redemption of Israel is here. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. That's his prayer. Your prayer's been heard. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice over his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He will drink no strong wine or strong drink. He's asking him to take the Nazarite vow. Get his hair long, no alcohol, no touching death. And surely uh, Zechariah must have thought that's the Nazarite vow. Who last took the Nazarite vow? Uh, Samson, Samson, Samson took the Nazarite vow and Samson's mother couldn't have a baby and Samson had a supernatural breath when an angel appeared to his father. Your kid's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. From the moment of conception, he's going to have personhood and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an apologetic against abortion. Life starts at conception. He's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He has personhood. And the kicker is, he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. And turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Those were the famous last words of the prophet Malachi, the very last sentence of the Old Testament. That on that great day when the Lord comes, Elijah will come first and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children back to their fathers. Wait a minute. I got a question. That's all awesome. That's great. I'm so excited. Oh, can I just ask one thing? Catholic answers. Uh. Wait a minute. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Because I'm a really, really, really old man and my wife is advanced in years. How will I know? Can you give me a sign? And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak this to you and to bring you the good news. And behold, you will now be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass because why you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. This angel can read his heart. He knows his motive for asking and he's not happy and he mutes him. He is muted, he cannot speak. He goes on a nine month silent retreat. (laughs) It's Ignatian for our father Jesuit up there. Well, the people are waiting for Zechariah to come out and they wonder, they're wondering uh, what's going on, what's going on, why is he in there so long? They're wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he couldn't speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a great vision in the temple and he made signs to them. (laughs) And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, he goes back. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months, she hid herself. She scrolled herself away. She hid herself. A baby is growing within her womb, the forerunner to the Messiah. His name's supposed to be John. The Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me, he took away my reproach among men. Let's talk about that angel. I am Gabriel. Who is that? When is the last time in the scriptures that we heard the name Gabriel? It's in the book of Daniel, chapter 8 and 9. Gabriel appears to Daniel. Daniel was a Jewish man living in the Babylonian exile. 
586 BC. He was a Jew that had been exiled to Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon took over the kingdom of Judah and sent the Jews into exile. And Daniel is praying. There's a prophecy from Jeremiah that says that Israel would be in exile by Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel was praying with that prophecy from Jeremiah and he realized something. The 70 years is almost up. The 70 years is almost up. We're going to be set free. It's supposed to be 70 years. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, he came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice, three o'clock. Ah, and he said this, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you. He's a messenger angel and you're highly esteemed, Daniel. Therefore, consider this message and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish your transgression. You've been bad, 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 bad. To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So what he's saying, yeah, 70's up, but guess what? It's going to be 70 times 7. 77's. 70 years of seven. <laughs> it's in Leviticus 26. If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. He had already punished them 70 years, seven times more than 70 or 490 more years of waiting for the Messiah is required. That was the very last time the angel Gabriel had appeared in the scriptures. God had sent him a message to Daniel through Gabriel that's going to be another 490 years. Now fast forward, same time. He's in the temple, same angel, Gabriel, and 490 years have passed. Time's up, time's up. 490 years have passed, it's Gabriel. Ah, Zachariah, could have had a V8. Um, <laughs> 490 years have passed, same hour, temple, ark is absent, righteous old, faithful Zechariah is standing at the turning point in all world history. Because the forerunner to the Messiah has been conceived in his wife Elizabeth by a supernatural birth announced by the angel Gabriel. Everything has changed. His son John is going to be the new Elijah, the new forerunner to the Messiah. He's not going to contend with King Ahab and Jezebel like Elijah had to, but he'll have to contend with King Herod and his brother's wife who he had stolen for his own. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph to the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary and coming to her he said hail favored one the Lord is with you Mary and Joseph are betrothed at this time they are pledged it's binding it's a binding contract in Jewish law the betrothal it might take a year before they seal the covenant in marriage in actual marriage betrothal was legal as part of marriage it was a natural progression no one knew the day or hour the father would send the son to get the bride. Joseph was from the house of David, the tribe of Judah. And Jacob had said in his final blessing that the scepter would not depart from Judah. So they were looking for the Messiah to come from Judah, from the house of David. And coming to her, he, Gabriel, same messenger angel, said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, other translations say, Hail, Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. And that Greek word at that time is called karakatomene. And it means a perfect passive participle. That word, karakatomene, full of grace, means that the action happened in the past but continues to have its effects in the present and will continue into the future. It's a special word. 
past, present, future. Gabriel's saying, Mary, you're full of grace. You've always been full of grace and you will continue to be full of grace in the future. But she was greatly troubled at what he said and she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Now, Noah was told that, that he had found favor with God. The Lord was with him. He'll be with him on that boat. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Every good Jew would know that every time in salvation history, when God says, do not be afraid, you better be afraid. (laughs) Because it means a battle's coming. A battle's going to ensue. A great battle every time. So she's going to be in for the battle of her life, and she's afraid. Joshua was going into battle. And the Lord said, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. The Lord's going to be with you. And when Gideon went into battle, the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid, Gideon, the Lord, I'll be with you, mighty warrior. And God said to Moses, don't worry, Moses, I'll be with you. When you go up against Pharaoh, I'll be with you. And to Jeremiah, he said, I'm with you, declares the Lord. Don't be afraid. David was not afraid. Remember when David faced the battle of his life with Goliath, he said, I'll go, I'll go. Anyone, I'll go, I'll go. Pick me, pick me. The battle belongs to the Lord. I'll fight for the Lord God of Israel. I'll slay the head of the giant. This little kid, this is Mary's ancestor. David is. She's from the house of David. So is Joseph. The battle belongs to the Lord. See his blind trust? I'll do it. His openness. The daughter of David will not be afraid. Even though she knows that a virgin woman's going to have a child that Satan wants to devour the minute it's born. Mary and Michael the archangel are very, very powerful in the battle against evil. Do not be afraid. The Lord will be with you. The Lion of Judah will crush the head of Satan. Here's a beautiful Caravaggio with St. Anne, Mary, and Jesus. And Mary, they've all cooperated in salvation. They've all had a part to play. And Mary has her foot on the head of the snake, and Jesus' little foot is right on top of hers. First words of his pontificate, John Paul II, be not afraid. Why? Because you're in a battle. The church is always in a battle. The church is in a battle right now from within. Be not afraid. The battle belongs to the Lord. How receptive are we to his grace? Because when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, said St. Paul. We're asked to take part in this battle. Evil surrounds us on every front. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will rule over the house of Jacob for how long? Because earthly kingdoms always had an end. First it was Babylon, then it was Assyria, then, you know. This kingdom's gonna last how long? Forever. Of this kingdom, there will be no end. It's an eternal kingdom. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord said, no, David, no, I'm going to establish my kingdom. But you are not going to be the one who's going to build a house for my name. I'm going to establish a throne of a kingdom forever. It'll be from your line, but it's not going to be you. This is exactly what the angel said, 2 Samuel 7, to Mary. It's going to have the throne of his father, David. It's from the house of Jacob. The kingdom's going to have no end. Now, Mary has a question. Excuse me, Gabriel, can I ask something? Mary said to the angel, how can this be? How can this be since I have no relations with a man? Struck mute? No. How is this question different than Zachariah's question? How can this be since I have no relations with a man? Mary is not doubting that the Lord's capable. Mary knows that she has promised her purity and her virginity. She has vowed 
to intentional virginity, perpetual virginity. How do we know that? St. John Paul II tells us that, that she had an intention of remaining a virgin forever. She's intentional about her virginity. How do we know that? We're going to have to go to tradition for this, folks. Now, St. John told us that he can't record everything Jesus said or did because the whole world wouldn't fill up the volumes of books. So not everything is in the Bible, okay? And St. Paul told us that we have to stand firm to the traditions which we were taught either by word of mouth or by letter. So there's some things in the church and in the Jewish faith that were oral traditions, and Mary's one of them. And I'd like to tell you about her and her intentional perpetual virginity. Her parents are Joachim and Anne. I'm going to get this from the Proto-Evangelium of James. And it's not scriptural, but it's a, a historical document that's well accepted. Joachim was very wealthy. This is Mary's father. He was a very wealthy man. And all righteous people in Israel had raised up a seed, a child for Israel. But Joachim had not been able to. And he was exceedingly grieved. He couldn't give his wife Anne, who wanted so bad a child, he couldn't. They didn't have a kid. They're getting very old. Joachim goes to the desert. He pitched his tent. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, saying to himself, I will not go down either for food or for drink until the Lord God will look upon me and my prayer shall be my food and drink. I'm giving up everything. I'm going to pray here for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm going to beg the Lord for a child for my wife. Joachim called to mind the patriarch Abraham that in the last day God did give him a son Isaac after all those years. And an angel came down and said, Joachim, Joachim, the Lord God has heard your prayer. Go down hence, and behold, thy wife Anna shall conceive. Oh, he couldn't wait. What? Anna's going to have a baby. He can't wait to run and tell her. Anna, during this 40 days, has been mourning and lamenting on her own, saying, I shall bewail my childlessness. She gazed up towards the heaven and saw a sparrow's nest in the laurel tree. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by her, saying, Anna, Anna, the Lord has heard your prayer, and you shall conceive, and you will bring forth thy seed that will be spoken of in all the world. And Anna said, as the Lord my God lives, if either I beget a male or a female, I will bring it as a gift to the Lord. I will dedicate my child back to the temple, just like Hannah did with Samuel. I will, I will bring it back as a gift to the Lord, and it will minister to him in all holy things all the days of its life. Anna stood by the gate waiting for Joachim to come. She had a message from an angel. He had a message from an angel. They run. They hug. She hugs him around the neck. This is a famous painting. And... She whispers in his ear. She says, now I know that the Lord God has exceedingly blessed me. For behold, the widow is no longer a widow. And I, the childless, will conceive. And they returned home after the 40 days. But they didn't come into a marital embrace just yet. Because Joachim wanted to do one more thing. This wealthy, wealthy man, on the following day, Joachim brought his offerings to the temple, saying to himself, if the Lord God has rendered gracious to me, the plate on the priest's forehead will make it manifest to me. Joachim brought his offerings. He observed attentively the priest's plate. He went up to the altar of the Lord. He saw no sin in himself. He's pure before the Lord. Joachim said, now I know that the Lord has been gracious to me. He has remitted all my sins. The Lord cleansed Yoakum, of all his sins, he went down from the temple of the house of the Lord, justified and departed back to his own home. And it's there that they came into the marital embrace, pure, justified, and in a singular act of God's grace, they conceived Mary, the pure vessel born without original sin that could house Messiah, Jesus, 
She was conceived immaculately. She said when she appeared in Lourdes, France, tell them I am the immaculate conception. Bernadette didn't even know what that was. She kept saying it as she was walking to the bishop. The, the, I am the Immaculate Conception. I am the Immaculate Conception. I am the Immaculate Conception. Because she was afraid she would forget because she didn't know what the heck it was. Joachim and Anna did not forget Anna's promise to God. And at around age three, they took Mary to the temple for dedication to offer her back to the service of the Lord. This little three-year-old girl. And they loved her so much. She was full of grace. She was just the most beautiful child, luminous with God's glory, receptive, open, joyful, all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Just like Hannah dedicated Samuel when she weaned him at age three, took him back to Eli and said, he's yours for the service of the temple. Anna is a new Hannah. <laughs> She's going to surrender Mary to the service of the temple. Jewish tradition records that there were commissioned virgins associated with the temple in Jerusalem. Very common in the ancient world, but in Jerusalem also. And Anne, Venerable Anne Emmerich, writes about it. She is the one who Mel Gibson used her writings for the Passion movie. And she's a German Augustinian nun. She had the stigmata. In 1813, she was confined to her bed and lived only on Eucharist and water. This is what she said. She had a vision. The virgins employed themselves with embroidery, the virgins at the temple, and other forms of decoration, carpets, vestments. They would clean the vestments and the vessels used in the temple. They had little cells from which they could see into the temple. And here they prayed and meditated. And these maidens, when they were grown up, they were given away in marriage. Their parents, in dedicating them to the temple, had offered them entirely to God. The devout and more spiritual Israelites, like Anna and Joachim, had for a long time had a secret presentiment that the marriage of one of these virgins would one day contribute to the coming of the promised Messiah. You know, they're waiting for Messiah, and he needs to be born of a virgin. So these very special holy devout girls were given over to the temple. And when the time had come, Anna and Joachim took Mary to the temple. They took her to the temple, and they had this little agreement between them. They hoped that she didn't look back, and if she went right in, that would be their sign. But if she looked back and she cried and she didn't want to go, then they'd have to rethink things. There's paintings of this all over. Like, I, we were just in Greece and saw so many scenes of this. We don't see them here in America. We're too young of a country. The high priest received Mary. He kissed her and blessed her and said, The Lord has magnified your name in all generations. 2,000 years from now, they'll be talking about you in Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> in you, on the last days, the Lord will manifest the redemption of the sons of Israel. And he set her down on the third step, step number three of the altar. And the Lord God sent grace down upon her. And Mary danced with her feet and all the house of Israel loved her. And her heart was captivated with the temple of the Lord, especially the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. She was so drawn to it like a little magnet. I will tell you more about that next time. But Jewish tradition was at age 12, husbands were sought for the virgins of the temple. Why? So that they would not ever defile the temple of the Lord. So they were given away in marriage at age 12, arranged marriage to holy men. That's where Joseph will come in. Mary had fully dedicated herself, an intentional virgin, to the service of the Lord. She was set apart for Him alone. God would be her bridegroom. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 1, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.